0: You're listening to One More Decision, an update from the One Decision podcast coming to you from London, Washington and LA. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. And with me today is my co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, the former chief of Britain's secret intelligence service. Richard, there's been something extraordinary happening in Islamabad, Pakistan, that has had ripple effects across the entire country. The former Prime Minister Imran Khan, who was Ousted last year was arrested in quite dramatic fashion this week on corruption charges and he was remanded in custody these last few days. His arrest, which his former cabinet colleagues and members of his party have been describing all week as an abduction by the state, it's ignited protests across Pakistan. Some of them have been very violent, that have seen his protesters clashing with police forces. At least half a dozen people have died. Thousands have been arrested. And in some provinces, they've actually imposed emergency measures, banning all gatherings and protests from taking place. And in the latest turn of events, Khan's arrest has now been ruled as illegal by the Supreme Court, who have ordered his immediate release. Richard, I first wanted to ask you about this instability that Khan's arrest has triggered and the anger that is now spilling out, not just in Pakistan, but also around the world. There have been hundreds of people protesting outside the Pakistani High Commission here in London. There has been a lot of anger that is being directed at the country's powerful military and intelligence services. So why are the people blaming the military and Pakistan's intelligence?
1: Well, I think you have to accept that an aspect of Pakistan's politics is the background and sometimes the foreground presence of a very powerful and influential military. I mean, what hasn't happened in Pakistan is what has happened in Turkey, which we were talking about a few days ago. The uh, military in Pakistan has never really released that uh, grip that they've held on aspects of the political system, and I think the problem here is that Imran Khan, who, as you remember, was forced out of power by a parliamentary vote, the sort of breakup of the coalition that supported him. But there's another election you know, due quite soon, and I think that he has become too popular, too populist, too powerful on the street, and I think he has stated his wish to cut the military out of politics to the degree that that's possible. So I think what you're seeing here is an attempt to put Imran Khan Beyond the political system, on a type of sort of trumped up charge. I mean, it's laughable. I think the accusation against him is selling political gifts. Well, I mean, Pakistani politics is such that this would be a very minor infraction, and if he's guilty of that, every politician in Pakistan is probably guilty of something. So you know, it, it, it is the military having a go at him, and of course, the core part of the military is the ISI, which is the uh, intelligence part of Pakistani military. And they are pretty much like a state within a state. I mean, they are very autonomous. They're very powerful. And, you know, when you enter their world, which I've done on previous visits to Pakistan, uh, you have the feeling that, you know, these guys are amongst the nation's power brokers. And, of course, the other aspect to this, which you have to remember, is... Uh, that Pakistan is not a signatory to the NPT Treaty and possesses nuclear weapons.
0: The Non-Proliferation Treaty, yeah.
1: Of course, the guardians of those nuclear weapons, which are seen as a deterrent against the overwhelming conventional force of the Indian military, are the ISI who have a key role in all of that. So I, I don't think any of this is particularly surprising, and of course, the sort of street violence is a fundamental part of you know daily political life in Pakistan, whether it's radical Islamists whipped up to uh, cause huge problems, or whether it's bomb attacks by Islamists on the Pakistani military from time to time, which have happened quite frequently. I, I mean it's a very, very fraught place and very
0: difficult. Richard, you can't drop such a tantalising little nugget such as, you know, the time when you had to deal with the world behind the curtain that is the domain of the ISI and not elaborate further on what exactly it is that you, you were up to. When was this? What were you, what were you sort of working with them uh, on? Tell us about, you know, your, your trips there and, and how you found them.
1: Well, I'm not gonna go into detail. <laughs> You're always pressing me. You're but on. I'll give you I'll <laughs> give you an night. Of course, it was about Kashmir and it was about the tension between India and Pakistan over Kashmir. And over time the Pakistanis have been supporters of the terrorist movements which have destabilized Kashmir and have been you know the bane of the Indian government and uh, I mean I'm going right back to the time that Musharraf was in power obviously a military man and um, really trying to get it across to the Pakistanis that we knew what they were up to and they should decease from you know supporting radical Islamic movements but the, the issue of Kashmir has never never been settled it's still a sort of bleeding wound between the two countries Um, and of course the Indians have taken a very tough military line there so I mean both sides have their problems but uh, obviously in a situation like that I would if I went to Pakistan I would be talking to the ISI but let's leave it there
0: You you obviously have a lot of backstory with Afghanistan, and there, of course, have been long-standing accusations and claims that the ISI were supportive of the Taliban. Did you ever rattle sabres with them on that issue?
1: Well, of course, we've covered that issue. At, uh, I mean, I think what you have to understand is this concept of what's called greater Pashtunistan. So the Pashtun are the dominant tribe in the sort of northern parts of Pakistan and large areas Of Afghanistan, and there's an ethnic identity which crosses borders there. So, for reasons of almost tribal loyalty to the Pashtun, and the Taliban have a massive Pashtun element, well, they are largely a Pashtun movement. They, of course, have had support from Pakistan. And uh, I mean, one of the problems with the Afghan situation has been that during the war in Afghanistan, the Pakistanis uh, were. Uh, sort of indulgent in allowing Taliban to come over to the border into Pakistan where they were out of reach. So, uh, I mean, they have supported that conflict. I mean, I don't know now what the state of the relationship is between the Taliban and the Pakistanis. I think it's more tense than it used to be, but I'm sure that it still exists, and I'm sure that uh, the ISI are still an important agent in that rather complex tribal situation and of course you know you do see competing indian and uh, pakistani straight pushed in influences being fought out uh, in aspects of the situation uh, in afghanistan i mean the area is hugely complex historically as, as those who studied it know and you know these issues run deep and have a certain intractability about them
0: The last thing on on this particular aspect of the ISI, I have to ask is of course, you know, famously Osama bin Laden was was found in Pakistan in Abbottabad, and there have been, there's long been rumors that there is a Pakistani support network, had been a support network for bin Laden. Do you think the ISI would have been involved in that?
1: Well, let's put it like this I just can't, I, I mean, Abbottabad is the equivalent of Aldershot in the UK. It is the military town uh, in Pakistan, and the idea that Bin Laden was living in a villa <laughs> in a street and in a, a batabad, and the Pakistani military didn't know he was there seems to me completely farcical. And uh, I think the problem has been elements within the Pakistani military have viewed these issues very differently, uh, and did the isi know that bin laden was there well i'm sure that the whole service didn't know he was there did one or two people in a group within the isi well sorry i think one has to sort of assume that there was some some knowledge somewhere i'm not saying this was the the, the pakistani state but it might have been a small group who who were sympathetic towards him so i think one has to conclude that that was a probability
0: that's interesting. Going back to Imran Khan, I mean, the reason why I think it's important to talk a little bit about the military and the ISI and, and understanding that power in Pakistan is because many people ascribe Imran Khan's success and, and his uh, his route to office as one that led through the military and the intelligence services, that without their support, he never would have been prime minister. And a lot of Pakistani experts and and journalists have said that part of the reason for his sudden ouster last year, despite him being at one point a hugely popular prime minister, um, was because he fell foul of the military and the intelligence services. Tell me a bit about the background of of who really holds the balance of power in in Pakistan. Because I think it's so interesting that we're discussing this, as you point out, at a time when we're also anticipating the election in Turkey. And you have this kind of this similar but also opposite situation where you have an incredibly powerful military. But in the case of Turkey, it has been kind of castrated bit by bit and slowly by President Erdogan. And he's done a lot of that in response to that failed coup against him in 2016, which we discussed. Um, it's not quite the same in, in Pakistan. And there are, of course, you know, many other countries around the world. Myanmar is another one. Uh, Egypt, where civilian governments have tried to hold office and to see full terms in government and have not been able to before being displaced by a powerful military. Pakistan has been ruled since its independence, sort of half, half and half between military leadership, and then the other half has been political dynasties, these two families, the Bhuttous and the Sharifs, who've led civilian governments. But they have done done so with the support of the military. So would you say that it really is the military? still that rules Pakistan or is it a bit more nuanced than that
1: I think it's more nuanced than that I mean there is a sort of functioning democracy but there's an aspect of Pakistani politics which is very feudal Uh, and what I mean by that there are these dominant families who literally have retainers amongst the rural poor and they have very influential positions and their power bases are built almost around the feudal loyalties. However, there's no question that the military have not let go of all of their power. The democracy functions with, to an agree, their oversight and approval. And if things start getting out of hand, getting out of control, and you lose the approval of the military, which clearly Imran Khan has done, I mean, he, he has become a rather populist element is able to rouse the street uh, in a quite dramatic fashion and I guess this sort of frightens uh, the the military so you get his what people have phrased his abduction by the state on a very trumped up charge which is intended I think eventually probably to put him on trial to disqualify him from politics from having a penal offence on his record but you know as you point out um, the high court now has demanded his release i mean there is you know there are the remnants of a system of democracy and independent judiciary in pakistan so it's it's not clear-cut it's not straightforward but i mean my guess would be if the military really put their foot down eventually you know they will get their way but it may be that they might have to compromise with Imran Khan if, you know, he's getting, uh, you know, if if the sort of street backing him becomes too disruptive and too powerful. And, of course, you have to remember that Pakistan is in a pretty parlous state economically, partly because of the dreadful floods it's been through, Um, and, you know, partly because, you know, it's, it's on the point of, of of, of going bust and I think at the moment isn't it waiting for approval for an IMF loan um, which has a whole lot of conditions attached to it uh, which it can't fulfill and it's on the point you know of running out of hard currency and therefore that will further affect the poor in terms of you know the availability on the internet of purchase of food and grain on the international market. So you know that the, there are a host of problems at the moment which destabilizing it, and it, it, it's always close to destabilization. But as I said, if you go into the mess of the ISI, you enter a completely different world. It's rather extraordinary. It's like a nineteenth-century British regimental mess. It's very hierarchical um very formal um very rigid and actually very muslim as well it's it's a peculiar mixture
0: have you uh watched any of the homeland tv shows there's a series where they do quite a lot on the isi <laughs> And they do characterize them <laughs> as really being quite devious and uh quite quite sinister. Um, but of course that is a very American take on on the ISI. But but what what, what you describe as as this kind of this feudal system and this sort of state within a state, uh there were quite a few some similarities between that uh, fictitious, I should stress, TV show. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I mean that's really what it's like. It's it's quite unnerving in a way. Because you go to a military mess, and and you know there are aspects of the British nineteenth-century infantry regiment. You know some of the officers are you know, they're very smart. They've got handled moustaches, and you know there's an awful lot of saluting and stamping around. And you know, there's a, you you sense that sort of.
0: Oh, you can't accuse the the Pakistanis of, of being full of pomp and but, circumstance oh, when we we've just co- had our coronation. Oh, I know, I know. I'm we not are accusing
1: it, but I'm saying it's a little it's a little unexpected in Pakistan that they've preserved this aspect of what, of course, was originally the Indian army, um, you know, which split in two at partition, and um, you know, both sides took. Bits of that tradition with them, and they're still very, very strong. It's extraordinary, and you know, they're in, in many respects, they're also impressive. I'm not, you know, they, 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 they are an ordered group, a disciplined group within a very disordered and uh, seriously. Uh, politically socially vulnerable country. And that's why it's, rem- it's reminiscent for me of going into you know Turkish military messes when the Turkish military were on a high and still very much a force in the land. And in uh, Pakistan, they haven't been cut down to size and they look likely to be. And of course, they do have their hands on Pakistanis, um, the Pakistani nuclear weapon.
0: Just one final quick question. You say that Pakistan is a country that's very often teetering towards destabilisation. Uh, what's at stake? Uh, you know, you mentioned it is a nuclear armed country. It is a country that ha- that often has these borderline spats with, with the Indians, um, how it-, it shares a border with Afghanistan. How how dangerous could it be for for Pakistan to really fall into the grip of real destabilization?
1: Well, it's geopolitically in a crucial area, uh, and you know if you look at the places in the world where you could have major conflict, India-Pakistan remains one, and the destabilized Pakistan would be of a huge worry internationally and to India. Um, it's also a nuclear armed power that makes it very as it were, significant if those um, uh, weapons were to get into the wrong hands in a destabilized country. Um, uh, I mean, that's hugely worrying. And then, you know, it's played a crucial role in Afghanistan, uh, not a a constructive role, I might say, uh, in promoting war and instability there. So on the other side, you know, it points towards the Middle East. It's a strongly Muslim country as well. So I think there are many reasons why we have to take the place very, very seriously. And if it begins to fall apart, things like the outflow of the population in terms of an immigration problem to other parts of the world, you can see all, the, all sorts of problems, which, you know, would affect Europe and the UK very significantly.
0: That's it from this world update from the One Decision podcast. If you enjoyed this little conversation, why not check out our channel for our main offerings, which drop every Thursday. Just search One Decision wherever you find your podcasts. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time.